Well, good evening. If you want to go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, we'll be there in just a second. Luke chapter 17. I appreciate Roger's comments um, before I got up here. I would be amiss if I did not start by thanking you all for, for welcoming me and my family in such an overwhelming way when we moved here a few months ago. Um, we knew right from the, from the bat that we were in a good company because our first day of getting the home, we had, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 of you guys there to unload our stuff, and it ended up only taking about five minutes because there were so many people there. Um, and then we were trying to find stuff for you to do, and all the furniture you guys put together that were at the house, it's all still together. So you guys did a good job. Um, but you guys have welcomed, welcomed us so well, and I, I, I searched for the words to, to try and illustrate or reiterate you guys have a special, a special thing here, a special group of people. Um, Ashley and I have, have struggled through various churches for the past seven years, um, and coming here was what we needed and what our family needed, and so I thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching on a few different things. He talks about temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one from whom they come. If I cause my brother to sin, it is better for me to have a millstone hung around my neck and me to be thrown in the sea than for me to do that to my brother. He goes on to say, if your brother sins, you should rebuke him, try and correct him. And if your brother repents, you should forgive him. And he goes on to say, even if your brother sins against you seven times in one day, you should forgive him. And I can imagine the disciples in that moment thinking, what, seven times in one day? Are you kidding me? Like one time makes sense, two times, okay, third time's the charm, but the fourth time and after, I'm not so sure about that, Jesus. And they say in that moment, increase our faith. To do hard things like forgive over and over again, increase our faith. In Mark chapter 9, we find a man who has a son that is possessed by a spirit, essentially, and that spirit causes him to be thrown into convulsions to the point that the spirit tried to throw him into fire and water in an effort to kill him. The disciples had been trying to cast out the spirit, but they were unsuccessful. And so the man comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And the man cries out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We live in a world today that is constantly attacking our faith. And we would do well, like the apostles in Luke chapter 17 and like the man in Mark chapter 9, to cry out to the Lord, increase our faith. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Faith is not a one and done thing. You are probably in this room tonight because you believe you have faith. But it's not either you have it or you don't, simply. It's more like a spectrum, one of the points I'm going to argue tonight is that all of humanity lives by a certain degree of faith. You can see on the board behind me, on the left side, 
Your left side, yep. So theist, one who believes in God, who can have strong faith. And, and you could think of people in your life that have strong faith in God. Most of the time, that's evidence from the way that they live. We see their faith from what they do. There are others who claim to believe in God, and yet you could say, really? Because their life doesn't really look that much different than everybody else's, and they would be more along the weak spectrum. Same with an atheist. There are strong atheists who firmly believe that there is no God, and they will do everything they can to stamp down anyone who might believe otherwise. And there are others who are more on the weaker side. And they say there is no God, but they don't really care what anybody else thinks. You can think for yourself where you might be along this spectrum. You can think for yourself where you've been in the past along this spectrum in your kind of growth. And it might be that at one point you were weak and then you became strong and then something happened that shook your faith and you were kind of gradually back down in the weak and then you overcame that and you came back strong again. And, and life is like that. We struggle at times. We grow at times. And we would do well to ask the Lord to increase our faith. The lesson tonight is going to be applicable to all, but I really want to encourage the middle school, the high school, the college crowd to listen up. I specifically had you all in mind as I was thinking through this lesson. You all are in a really tough time of life. It's a special time, but it's a really hard time to be a Christian. You're often alone in your faith when you're at school or at work. You can be the odd one out because of your faith. As a Christian, you talk different, you dress different, you act different, and those are hard years to be different. My struggle during my teenage and early 20s came mostly through attacks on the legitimacy of God himself. So I can remember being in the high school baseball locker room and a guy who had a locker near to me I think had small dog syndrome because he always seemed to pick on me because I think he knew I wouldn't do anything about it. But he knew that I was the guy leaving church or leaving, not leaving church, leaving sports, leaving baseball practice or games on Wednesday nights and on Sunday nights to go to church. So one day he looked at me and he said, Bradley, you're telling me you really believe that a guy was swallowed by a fish, lived in there for three days and then was spat out on dry land? I said, yes. Didn't have much of a conversation after that. But a seed was planted in my mind, a seed of doubt. I can remember a biology class in high school showing up on the first day, and on the front table are skulls showing how we evolved. It was never a discussion of creation versus evolution. There was only one explanation for where we came from, and that was what was taught. I had an anatomy class in my undergrad that the professor's sole goal was to disprove that there was a God. I mean, he was adamant about it, and, and his goal was to make you feel silly if you did not think that we were evolved from apes. And all of those things were little seeds planted in my mind. None of those destroyed my faith, but through all of those situations, Satan discovered a weakness of my heart. I struggle with doubt. Through each of those situations, Satan poked holes in the hole of my faith that I have been trying to repair ever since. 
At the time, I was the grandson of two preachers, the son of a preacher and an elder, and two of my brothers were preachers, and I was going to come along and say, I'm not so sure about this, guys. I'm not so sure I believe. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that. And so I kept all of the things to myself. I, I, I allowed my fear of disappointing others to overwhelm me, and I kept all of my struggles and fears and my doubts inside. And thus the lesson for tonight was born. I want to argue for or talk through four points. One, we are created. There is a God. He is alive like we just sung. And we're going to look at a piece of evidence that I think can help us along uh, that route, coming to that conclusion. I want to make the point that all humans live by faith in something. Some would tell you that faith is stupid, faith is blind, and yet we all rely on faith for whatever worldview we hold. I want to encourage us never to be afraid to ask hard questions. I was alone with my doubts and struggles because I was too afraid to ask for help. And I want to encourage you not to do that to yourself. And then finally, I want to look at some specific examples for how our lives might change if God were to increase our faith. What might look different? Why is this so important? Why is this something that you and I should be praying regularly? Lord, increase my faith. I believe, help my unbelief. So we'll start with the first one. We are created, there is a God. In Romans chapter 1, this is kind of the, the classic section we go to when we're thinking about some biblical arguments for creation, for why we should follow God because we are made by Him. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This world speaks of a creator. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It, that, that chapter in the Psalms is, is talking about how everything in creation is yelling at us, there is a God, there is a maker. In Romans chapter 1, the argument is the reason humanity has come so far from where we were is because we started worshiping the creature rather than the creator. You can think of that in different ways. You can think of the idolatry in the Old Testament. You can think of evolution now, where we worship the creature rather than the creator. Psalm chapter 14 and verse 1 and Psalm 53 and verse 1, those psalms are very similar if you read through both of them. Um, the first verse says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I don't, I don't want this to come across the wrong way. If you're in the room and you, and you don't believe, you, believe in God, you're an atheist, um, this does not mean you're stupid, okay? That's not what this verse is saying. You may be a lot smarter than I am. There are a lot of atheists that are smarter than me, probably all of us in this room. It says a fool. And when I think of fool biblically, especially in this context, I think the point that he's trying to get across is one of ignorance, Similarly to what we read in Romans chapter 1, there is evidence all around us. And the one who ignores that evidence is called a fool. And then in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 12, the writer says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. I can imagine um, thousands of years ago thinking through, how do I see? 
How, do, how, does this, how does my eye work? Solomon, probably the writer of this proverb, in all of his wisdom and in all of his contemplation of how the world worked, may have thought that. How do I hear? When someone speaks, what, what's going on in here that allows me to hear what they're saying? And his conclusion was, I don't really know, but I know that it had to be made by the Lord. The Lord has made them both. So we're going to piggyback off that verse, and the evidence I want to examine this morning is I want to look a little more closely at the eye and how sight works, okay? This is going to be somewhat of a biology lesson, but before you start heading for the doors or start throwing stuff at me, it's only going to be a few minutes, I promise, okay? And this will be better. There's no test unless your name is Desiree, Sean, or Napoleon, then there's probably going to be a test later. Um, there's no homework, there's no report cards, all right? And you'll notice that I didn't put anything on your outline about this, okay? I don't want you to worry about frantically trying to write stuff down like we did in school, trying to memorize all these facts. I simply want us to spend a few minutes marveling at our maker's creation. So let's jump in. The eye is considered the second most complex organ in the body. The first being the brain, which the eye is actually kind of an extension of the brain and development. It buds off of the developing brain. So how does it work? How does this little ball stuck on the front of my face allow me to see the world around me? All right. So a little bit of anatomy. Let's see if I can figure this thing out. All right. Here we go. So, oh man, I'm shaking really bad, guys. Um, so this front part of your eye, the first place, so essentially the, the eyeball is going to be processing light coming in. So this first part right here, the cornea, it is a clear portion that's kind of curved. You can see it's kind of curved. It's going to bend the light for us so that the light's going to go in the right direction, okay? After the light goes through the cornea, it's bent and it's headed towards what we call the pupil, Okay. You think of that as the, the black portion of your eye that kind of grows and shrinks. The pupil growing is actually a result of the iris. The iris is the colorful part of your eyes. It expands and contracts based upon how much light is around you. So it grows and shrinks the pupil based upon how much light it wants to get into your eyeball. I experienced firsthand why this is so important a few weeks ago when I went to the eye doctor and they dilated my eyes. And then they didn't give me any sunglasses and it was a really bright day outside and I was blind. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see my phone. I was driving and like I'm a hazard on the road right now. This is really important. If there's so much information coming in, so much light, we can't see. And so the iris contracts and expands. And the cool thing is it does that without us having to say anything or do anything. It's not like I look outside and I see, okay, it's a bright day today. I'm going to uh, expand the iris so my pupil's a little bit smaller. It, it just does it. You can, you've probably all done the experiment where you go in the bathroom and you shut the door and it's really dark in there. And then you flip the light on real quick and you look at your pupils and they're really big. That's what's happening here. So light's coming through the cornea. Um, goes through the pupil, and the next thing it hits is the lens. Now, the lens is flexible, and it adjusts its shape and size to, again, bend the light, to filter the light, because it's going to shoot it back to the back of the eye, the retina. This, again, happens unconsciously. It's come similar to like a camera, a lens on a camera that we used to move back in the day. Um, but, again, it does this without us having to think about it. Now, if... 
the lens doesn't work, isn't as flexible as it used to be, which some of you older people in the room might have experienced, you may need reading glasses or glasses like me because my lens doesn't focus like it should. So it allows the light to get to the back of the eye, the retina, in the right proportion and at the right focus. Now at this point, an interesting thing is the light has been bent twice. So it's been bent by the cornea and it's been bent by the lens. And the image that's hitting the back of your eye is actually upside down. So in reality, I'm seeing you all upside down right now, but my brain is flipping you right side up. Again, it does that without me having to say anything or do anything. Another cool thing about the lens, these are the cells of the lens over here. And it's kind of hard to see, um, but, but the cells are very long and thin, okay? The primary protein in the cells of the lens is called crystalline, and you can think why. It's crystal clear. They're crystal clear. They want everything to be able to get through um, in focus. Now, if you zoom in with a scanning electron microscope, it, it looks like this. Uh, the cells look like this. It kind of looks like a stack of wood. I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road and, and a pickup truck in front of you, there's like a bunch of lumber stacked on each other. That's similarly to what it looks like. But think about as that truck is driving down the road, it hits a bump. The wood shifts. It's like sliding on each other. It goes around a turn and it shifts and it slides. Now, if, if our lens did that, when I jumped and hit the ground, all those cells would shift and vision would get blurry. But ours doesn't do that. Our vision doesn't shift like that. What holds the cells in place? If you zoom in even further, you can see these tiny little feet on the cells. These are called peg and, sock, peg and socket interlocks. And that's what keeps the cells from sliding and moving around to affect our vision. Now, I don't care who you are or what degree you have or how many initials are following your name. <laughs> that's not an accident. There's no way that that was an accident. We go back to the eye. So here's where we are. So the light has come, oh, switch sides over here. The light has come through the cornea. This liquid is called um, the aqueous, that's not important. The pupil to the lens, it's going to pass through this, this is like a big ball of jelly right here. This is called the vitreous, and then it's going to hit the back of the eye, the retina. Okay, this is where a lot of the nerves of the eye, the photoreceptors, are going to collect all of the information. You have two types of photoreceptors. They are rods and cones. Rods help you see color. Cones help you see black and white. You have about 120 million rod cells and about 6 million cone cells. They're going to collect all of that information. Then they're going to take all of that information. This is the retina. And they're going to send it via the optic nerve, which this is what the doctor is supposed to be seeing when they're doing that thing where they're really close to your face and looking in the back of your eye. This is what they're looking at. And they can see your retina back there. They can see your optic nerve. And then from there, the information is going to travel from the eye down the optic nerve to the back of the brain, the occipital lobe. And that's where your brain is going to take all that information, flip it, up, flip it right side up, and that's how sight happens. All of that's happening right now, and we're not doing anything. So, much, so many different parts working together in all of their unique ways so that we can see the beautiful world around us. What an amazing thing that something so small does so much for us. So much complexity speaks to a creator, which Proverbs 20 and verse 12 answers by saying, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. 
Praise God for his amazing creation that brings so much joy and wonder and amazement into our lives. Biology lesson over. You guys can breathe again. All right, so let's go on. All humans live by faith. Let's back that up real quick. Um, all humans live by faith. Now, why did I choose the I for tonight? There are many things that we could have chosen to discuss as evidence of a creator, but why the I? Well, Charles Darwin is considered the father of evolution, specifically through natural selection. His book, On the Origin of Species, brought this idea to the public eye, and it's considered the origin story for mankind among many of those who do not believe in God. The claim is that evolution, this is true science with overwhelming evidence, and anyone who would argue otherwise is ridiculous. However, the macroevolution that Darwin theorized, meaning the, the transition from one species to another, like an ape to a human, for example, has, has never been seen. We have not seen that. To think of evolution as the origin story of mankind requires faith in the unseen. While many attack those who believe in God as having blind faith, they would do well to examine their own beliefs. The Big Bang and macroevolution, often taught by most schools as fact rather than theory, both rely on faith in the unseen. Even Darwin, who wholeheartedly believed his theory, recognized that it takes a great deal of faith to believe it. Here's what he said about the eye. So to suppose the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So all of that that we just talked about, the wonder of sight, to think that it could have just evolved over time by small changes, he says, I confess, it kind of seems absurd. It is a barrier to his faith and his theory. Now, I don't want to say that Darwin is saying, yeah, evolution is not really a thing. Because he still wholeheartedly believed in that. If we go on in, in this, he says, Yet reason tells me that if numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor can be shown to exist, if further the eye does vary ever so slightly and the variations be inherited, then the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable by our imagination, can hardly be considered real." Whew, all right, lots of big words there. What is he saying? I believe it to be true. That's what he's saying. Reason tells me, if I think about it enough, I can, I can think that, yeah, this could happen over time. Though the evolution of the eye is a challenge to Darwin's theory, he believes it to make sense. It would make further sense, he says, if proof could be shown to exist. Darwin had faith. He had a great deal of faith. He believed in what he had not seen. All humans live by faith. If no God, where did the particles that interacted to produce the Big Bang come from? How is it, an, how is it that an accident could have produced an earth exactly the right distance from the sun to support life? Maybe the universe has always been, some might say, but then why is the universe seemingly expanding? as if it started from one location. Questions that can't be answered without God. Let no one tell you your faith is a blind one. The evidence is clearly seen. 
Again, like I mentioned earlier, when I was struggling through my doubts and uh, fears, I was afraid to ask the questions. I want to encourage all of us in this room to never be afraid to do that. Biblically, asking hard questions actually puts you in pretty good company. Think back to the story of Job, considered a righteous and blameless man. He was wealthy, he had a great family, and just like that, he lost it all. And he struggled with that deeply. He asked challenging questions. Why is this happening? What does this mean about who God is? And we find in the book of Job about 35 chapters of him and his friends discussing challenging questions. And at the end of the book, he says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. He says this about God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And I always think that verse is so cool. Think about someone who is telling you about a person you've never met. They're describing them to you, and you're trying to get a picture in your mind of who they are. And then you meet that person, and you're like, that's not what I pictured at all. That's essentially what Job is saying about his faith in God. I thought I knew who God was until all of this happened, and I struggled with these questions, but I realized I was simply just hearing about him. And now, I see him. Job's working through the challenging questions allowed him to increase his faith. Habakkuk is another example. Habakkuk is uh, three chapters long. And Habakkuk lives during a time when Judah is wicked and sinful, and he is throwing questions at God. How can you allow this wickedness to continue? Why aren't you doing anything? And God responds by saying, I am doing something. I'm sending Babylon. And Habakkuk's like, what? That makes no sense. Babylon's even more wicked than we are, God. And yet he says, as he poses these questions to God, I will take my stand at the watchtower, and I will wait to see how he responds. And God does, and Habakkuk in chapter 3, goes through Israel's history to see how God came through over and over and over again in all these situations where it didn't seem like God was there or that God cared, and he came through over and over again, and Habakkuk ends his discourse, his questions, his challenging thoughts about God and who he is by saying, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy. And the God of my salvation. I don't understand what's going on. These are challenging times. These are challenging questions. And yet, Habakkuk's faith was increased through thinking about those things. Never should we look down or judge anyone who asks a hard question. Never should we be afraid to ask a hard question that's bothering us. We should use that as an opportunity to grow our faith. We must learn to think critically and teach our kids to do the same. That should be how we're teaching them at home, how we're teaching them in our Bible classes, not rote memorization, but thinking through what does this look like in my life. The world does not need smart people. It needs wise people who ask hard questions and rise up to work through them with the fear of the Lord in our hearts. We as the people of God are not to be memorizers of facts, but contemplators of truth. Never be afraid to ask hard questions. 
All right, let's finish up. Maybe it is that we struggle serving God the way we should because of a lack of faith. Maybe our lives and the churches of today look very different from those of the first century in terms of their evangelism and boldness and love because while we believe, our hearts are also struggling with unbelief. Peter, on the night of Jesus' arrest, denied knowing Jesus three times. His unbelief won the moment. And yet, 50 or so days later, we find him standing before the masses for thousands proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. So what changed? The resurrected Jesus had increased his faith. And he gained boldness from that. May God do the same for us. May God help our unbelief. May God increase our faith so that we stop seeing those around us as hopeless or helpless or beyond repair, but we would see them as Jesus saw them. Sheep without a shepherd, in need of compassion and a Savior. And may that increase in our faith encourage us to reach out to them. May God increase our faith so that we truly recognize that we are more than the clothes we wear, more than the cars we drive, more than the color of our skin, more than our IQ. May God increase our faith so that we know who we are and whose we are, that we are children of the Most High God, the creator of the universe, fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. May God increase our faith so that when people attack our faith and we don't have answers in the moment, that we don't drop our heads or put our tails between our legs, but that we ask, we study, we work through the difficult questions together, all the while asking God to increase our faith, crying, we believe, help, help our unbelief. As I mentioned earlier, Satan discovered a weakness of mine with the attacks on my faith. Those struggles and doubts were not a one-and-done thing, but he has continued attacking During residency, I lost two grandparents about a year apart rather suddenly during a time when the world was shut down and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And that that hit me pretty hard. It was also during this time that one of our responsibilities as residents in the hospital was to do the death pronouncement for, for anyone who passed away in the hospital. So we would enter the room, we would give our condolences to the family, often meeting them for the first time. And then we would check for certain reflexes, watch for chest rise and fall with breasts, listen for heart sounds. Um, Those were some of the most challenging situations I remember being in. What What do you say to the family in that moment? On top of that, I saw a shell of a person that was there only moments before. Now, not responding to voice, not responding to touch. Where'd they go? Is this it? One day I will be the one in this bed, someone doing a death pronouncement for me. What then? And those wounds in my heart, the cracks in the hole of my faith were opening again. This is one of my many struggles, and maybe it is for you as well. But may God increase our faith and open our eyes to the ultimate reality that this world is not our home. We were made for something more. One day our chest will rise one final time. Our heart will give one final beat. Our eyes will no longer see, and yet that's not the end. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that God through Jesus has set us free from the fear of death. 
1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when this mortal puts on immortality, when this body tastes death, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The strength of sin is death and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is the ultimate reality for each of us in this room. May God increase our faith so that we live each day with this knowledge, giving our all for Him, understanding that our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers who do not know Him are destined for destruction. May God increase our faith so that we boldly speak up and voice our concern for their souls. May God increase our faith so that we will be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. That one day, one day, we will see him face to face, unveiled in all his glory, and all doubt will be cast far from us. Let's close with a prayer, and then I'm going to offer the invitation. Let's pray. God, you are awesome. You are our maker, and we give you all the glory and praise that we can. We ask tonight, God, that you would increase our faith, we believe, but we pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would use us in this world to show your glory and your majesty and your beauty. Our lives are yours, God. Our hearts are yours. We give them all to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions about anything we talked about this evening, I, I do want to, like we talked about earlier, never be afraid to ask hard questions. Find me, find someone. Um, we'll work through these things with you. We'd love to talk about them with you. We'll offer an invitation in just a moment, um, giving anyone the opportunity to come forward that may need to respond. But if you don't come forward and you still have concerns, questions, doubts, find somebody. We'll gladly chat, study, and pray through these things with you. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. By doing so, we'll work to increase our faith together. There are two thoughts that I, I want to share as a means of offering the invitation. One thing I really struggled with during my period of doubt in my faith was the suffering in the world and how a loving God was up in heaven seemingly doing nothing about it. I read a lot of books, a lot of philosophical arguments that I mostly didn't understand. And one thing that really stuck with me was a short story about a person walking down the street and on the side of the street, they see a child that's cold and hungry and has nowhere to go. And the person who sees the child points their fingers up to heavens and, say, and says, God, how can you sit up there and do nothing while this little child suffers? And God responds by saying, I did do something I made you. All that time I had been pointing my fingers up to the heavens, blaming God when really those things that were bothering me, the things that bother us, the world, we should be out there doing something about them. If people are complaining about how God is doing nothing in the world, we are failing. The second is that any argument we might throw at God of questioning His goodness he dashes to pieces at the cross. While he was watching us in our sin, 
He knew he was going to send his only son, a piece of him, and he was going to watch his son suffer and groan like Larry was talking about this morning, and his bones were going to be popped out of joint, and he was going to let it all happen because we messed up. God is good, and he shows us that once and for all at the cross. And what the cross says for us is there is hope for something greater than this world, for life beyond this. And I wish there were words I could say to appropriately wake us up to the reality that awaits us. One day you and I will leave this earth. No diet, no doctor, no surgery, no medicine will stop that. It is appointed for man to die once, the Bible says, then comes judgment. One day you and I will stand before the maker of the universe and he will look each of us in the eye, and all else will be stripped away in that moment. The money you made, the homes we built, the degrees, the grades, the titles, all of it, gone. And you will be face to face with the one who's going to determine where you spend eternity. This will happen. It is coming for each of us. Will you obey the God who is going to determine where you spend eternity? That is all that matters in the end. He calls you tonight to put away the old man of death. As Jesus was crucified, he calls you to put the old man to death on a cross, to bury that man beneath the waters of baptism and rise to walk in newness of life just as Jesus rose from the grave. And then he calls us to walk with Jesus for the rest of our life until the day we will walk with him in heaven. If we can help you start that journey with him tonight, or maybe you've started, but you've stumbled away. Whatever your need may be tonight, if we can help you in any way, please come forward right now while we stand and while we sing.